0: Hey there, Alabaster Jar listeners. Before we begin today's episode, I want to invite you to join us on Thursday, January 27th for the launch of the Center for Women in Leadership's webinar series. This is a monthly series of free webinars designed to equip and empower you for leadership. This month, we will be joined by Margo Tirado, a psychotherapist, emotional habits coach, and professional speaker with over 25 years of clinical experience. She will teach you how to own your own perspective, learn how to manage any fear keeping you from stepping into leadership, and how to use your body language to exude confidence. You can register at cwlnorthern.com webinars. Welcome to The Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. On today's episode, our host Dr. Lynn Kohick, is joined by Dr. Cindy Parker. Cindy is an expert educator and writer specializing in the context of the Bible, trips to Israel, and theology of place. She is the author of Encountering Jesus in the Real World of the Gospels. Cindy lived in Jerusalem for five years and currently teaches courses about the geographical, cultural, religious, and political context of the Bible at Jerusalem University College. She has led over 40 trips in Israel. Her research interests include biblical views of place, biblical history and geography, and the correlation between theology and ecology.
1: Hi, Cindy. It's so great to visit with you and talk about your fantastic book, Encountering Jesus in the Real World of the Gospels. Thanks for joining us on Alabaster Jar.
2: Thank you. It is ever since you started this podcast project, I've been watching it. So I am honored to just be a part of the group of people that you host on this podcast. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, you're quite welcome. Well, you do a lot of fun stuff and we love to hang out with fun people. It makes me feel like maybe some of your funness will rub off on me. I don't know. I mean, you're you're, like you, you go to fun places. I mean, in fact, you have a, your, your website is called narrative of place. That is so fun. Tell me a little bit about what you mean by narrative of place.
2: I, when I was in college, I think is when I first started traveling and seeing the world. And I became completely addicted to the fact that I could be in different places, meet brand new people, eat totally different food. It was an obsessive part of like something I didn't know was internal to me. And so I really started leaning into that. And when I was A lot younger than I currently am, Uh, I used to talk about being a resident of the world and a citizen of no place. And I kind of held that as a badge of honor. And as I went through seminary, and then as I really started focusing in particular on the context of the biblical narrative, I started realizing how significant actual places are and how land itself tells a story and i was focusing on the bible but it's true everywhere i i go the land the nature tells a particular narrative and it in and of itself influences the people who live there and i started realizing that for me to claim for myself this identity of not being a citizen of any one place i was denying land the ability to, to hold me as a part of a community. And so just as I've you know grown up and matured and studied and been very particular to look at places, I started realizing how important the stories are that are held in land itself. And so narrative of places birthed out of that with a focus on the stories land wants to tell uh, with a very particular emphasis towards the biblical landscape in particular, but it's something I focus on no matter where I go.
1: Oh, that that is so fun. Yeah, as we were getting ready to start our podcast uh, today, I was telling you and Serene my tale of woe and visiting, um, coming home from a trip with my parents and it having snowed last night where they lived and getting stuck in their driveway and then getting having to come out and you know but snow i i grew up in snow in the winter and so you just you learn how to drive in it but it very much is a part of a story that for someone who has never seen snow we entertain some guests over the holidays who uh are in australia and so like they were just fascinated with snow, whereas I think, well, but you can get your car stuck in snow, you know, <laughs> it's different, <laughs> right. but, but the place makes such a difference, you know, and you interact uh, just that I'm just using an example here of weather, but the, yeah. it, it, uh, yeah, it it's a, it's fascinating. You did a lot of, we're going to talk about the New Testament primarily uh, today, but you did a lot of your uh, dissertation work on the book of Deuteronomy. Yes. So that which really has an emphasis on land. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about how that informed your your study of Deuteronomy and place informs how you think about your place today in 2021?
2: <laughs> or 2022? <2022. laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah,
1: sorry. <laughs> sorry. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be doing that for a couple of months, probably.
2: Uh, Yeah. Deuteronomy changed everything for me and place changed everything for me. So it's a happy marriage between the two. They're both life transforming uh, topics. I think for me, um, the obsession with Deuteronomy started prior to even going to seminary uh, when I was, before I would even tell anyone I was Christian or I was Christian, walked away, was thinking of coming back, thinking of Is God even something practical to believe in? So within that story time of my life, there was a very distinct interaction, I suppose, uh, grappling or wrestling with God, out of which came this idea that remembering the way that God shows up in our lives is absolutely essential. And shortly after that, I don't remember why. I was interacting with the book of Deuteronomy but the word remember is hugely significant in the book of Deuteronomy. And so I was I had this natural affinity towards the book because of the word remember. Shortly after that I went to Israel for the first time and in interacting with the land of the Bible and the real existence of people who lived in that kind of land, uh, I started realizing how earthy and dirty with the reality of life, the book of Deuteronomy was. And so so that then paired the issue of remember to the actual experience of the land. And then I realized, oh, the biblical text takes the physical existence of people in the land where they live and then mapped onto it their story of how God interacted with them throughout history. And so the land itself reminds people of who God is. And and all of that became really fascinating, which then pushed me into my dissertation work, which was a happy marriage of all those things.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. That's fantastic. And then uh, kind of fast forward a little bit, and you've taken that work in Deuteronomy and you've brought it to the time of Jesus, kind of looking at one of the things I love, and there's several things to love about your encountering Jesus in the real world of the Gospels. I mean, it's just a great book. It's great for those who don't have a lot of knowledge because I think it just kind of opens the Bible. But for those who have read the Bible, the New Testament uh, a lot, there's just these nuggets, these gold nuggets that are fantastic. So it reaches such a wide and diverse audience. But you, part of, I think, the genius of it is that you locate Jesus within his Jewish world, this yeah. kind of big picture world. And, you know, the alabaster jar, while we love all of the Bible, we tend to also want to highlight those aspects that focus on women yeah. and women's lives. And, and you do that um, through this book as well, where you talk about the big picture and how this big picture of Judaism in the first century in Judea and Galilee, as well as Samaria, kind of sandwiched in between those two, um, how how women of that time uh, would have lived their lives and then how they might have experienced Jesus' teaching and his ministry. So, yeah, can you just tell us a little bit about this big picture of Jewish women at the time?
2: It's hard to know where to go with it, but I this is where I'm going to start. When I was living in Israel, I met and interacted with so many different Jewish scholars and just real people living in land. And it made me reconsider so much of my North American assumptions about the Bible. And part of that was the reality, the lived experience of women at various times. And I am completely fascinated even in the Hebrew Bible. Women in this patriarchal period uh, and yet women who are in a subsistence living economy, which means you can't hide women away in a tent somewhere, which is how we depict people in the Hebrew Bible, which is not true. You have to have everyone in your community working. And there's so much research that is being done on the the lived necessity of women being active and present in the community. And I really started taking what I was learning about um, Israelite context and looking at the same land that we see in the time of the first century and realizing some of these truths um, or some of the assumptions that I was thinking about women in the Gospels maybe also needed to be looked at differently. And I was looking at even the structure of the ancient synagogue. If we just look at the the archaeology of an ancient synagogue, and especially the ones that we have that date to the time of Jesus in particular, so very early first century synagogues, I had always heard of this staunch separation between male and female in the synagogue where all the most recent study that is coming out is saying the whole community would have gathered together. They all would have been there. Even the earliest uh, educational system that happened was with boys and girls together. And all of these things made me realize how women were a lot more present and active in their communities than we ever allowed them to have the voice to be. And that is shame on us, right? Like we're muting their voices when I think they in their context were not nearly as muted as we assume that they were.
1: And if I could jump in, because we're talking about the land of uh, Judea and Galilee, um, but it also holds, as you know, in, in the diaspora, right? So we have these a diaspora synagogues maybe not from quite as early but i as you were talking i was thinking of in first uh, timothy chapter 2 where paul says uh to timothy let women learn there's it's a command you know i'm 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 insisting that these women learn and we have to think oh yeah well these uh pagan gentile women have no analog to synagogue Whereas the Jewish women in Ephesus and all around every Sabbath would have heard Moses read as James tells us in Acts 15. So these Jewish women are raised along with their uh, Jewish brothers and husbands and fathers, knowing God's word and participating in the festivals kind of side by side, if you will, um, in a way that the Gentile women coming into the church just wouldn't have had mm. p- pagan religious experience didn't train the devotees. They didn't have a book in the same way as you know yeah. the Jews have God's word and now you know, Christians have God's word. But anyway, yeah, so it just yeah. It's, uh, it's an important, a, a very important note that we realize that Jews, Jewish women that Jesus interacted with would have known scripture. Yeah, to the same extent that their brothers and husbands did.
2: Yeah. And I love that you mentioned that even in the context of the annual celebration of the feast is an annual retelling, reliving of their history. It's a, a quoting of your Psalms. It's, I mean, everything it's, it's, becoming a people that has a scripture-soaked mind, and that's a male and female scripture-soaked mind, which I think is incredibly beautiful. And it really should challenge the way that we understand Jesus in his interaction with the people of the community. Because again, one of the assumptions I grew up with was everyone hated the women Jesus was the lone Jewish male who honored women. And I think, actually, if we relook at how they functioned as a community, that's not true. Um, Jesus honored women, that is true. Uh, But I think they were honored in their communities otherwise, too. So I don't think we should set Jesus up against His Jewish community, he was Jewish acting the way his community was acting. And I think that's a really important uh, corrective to kind of bring into the modern way that we study women in the first century.
1: Absolutely. Can you say a little word? Because I'm thinking about uh, the the court of the women in uh, Herod's temple. I think when some people hear that, they think of like the ladies' room, you know, where there's no men allowed, you know, and, uh, and that's not the case at all. So maybe tell us a little bit about even how, as they would go up for the festivals and, and participate, uh, in Herod's temple, how men and women would have interacted and tell us a little bit about this court of the women.
2: That's a great question. And, uh, To a certain extent, I'm like, I don't know. I'm on the podcast with you. You should tell us (laughs) more about that. But I will say like everything about going to Jerusalem, to the pilgrim, like participating in the pilgrimages, um, participating in a mikvah, like actually doing the ritual immersion. This is a male and female are doing it together. The ascending up to the temple platform, which is a completely separated space away from the profane space, the regular normal space of the city of Jerusalem is open to everyone, male, female, Jew, Gentile, even the fact that you could ascend up into this sacred place and then getting closer to the temple. And this is something I'm not sure people realize unless they've gone to the, or have spent a lot of time either looking at maps and drawings of Herod's temple complex It just means the majority of space was shared space. The majority of the platform was open to everyone. So male, female, Jew, Gentile. It's only when you get a lot closer to the building that you start to have the division where it's Gentiles can't pass. And then you're in Jewish space, but it's still an all-inclusive space until you get to the part where it's now priests, only priests can go. And so there's something about just recognizing the temple doesn't like Herod's temple with the court of women doesn't come out of nowhere. It's built on this tradition of the tabernacle, the first temple. Now we have a second temple and the spaces become more and more elaborate, but the same designation of space is holding true where you have the place where God's people can gather together before God And then we're going to separate it into a much smaller space where then the priest can go and even smaller space where it's just the high priest can go during certain times of the year. But yeah, I just, the, the all inclusive nature of who gets to approach the sacred God um, is one that maybe we just don't focus on enough.
1: That's right. That's right. And I think one of the reasons it sometimes slips through the cracks for protestants is that we don't have a lot of categories for purity and clean and unclean yes but as you mentioned (laughs) sacred you know it's so much a part of things and for women well we see it in the story of mary um the mother of jesus that she goes up and she offers some um uh, sacrifice for mm-hmm. her purity after childbirth. I mean, there's nothing sinful about childbirth at all, yeah. or even menstruation, but there there's levels of purity and impurity. And there's also on the man side and also for married couples. Yeah. Um, there's uh, you know, after the marital act that they are rendered impure until the sun goes down. So, th- and that's stuff, that's just not part of our Protestant vocabulary. And so again, the spaces yeah. then become kind of confusing. We only have the category of sinful or not sinful, but a lot of times it had more to do with sacredness relative to yeah. a space of purity. Yes.
2: Yeah, and I think that whole idea of we we render pure or clean and unclean as filthy or sinful, which is not, it's like, it's just, you have a human body that does weird human things. And how can you stand in front of a sacred, fiery, burning, majestic, amazing God, you know, when your body is kind of falling apart. So it's just creating this space for like, can we recognize who we're getting ready to go stand in front of? And can we do all that we can to just be pure, as pure as we can in a finite body. And even just with the beginning of Epiphany, as we're currently entering into this um, time and thinking of Mary and Joseph going to the temple and Simeon and Anna, I'm remembering that even these laws of purification, there's a little bit of grace built into it. It's Forty days after giving birth it's kind of a, a a built-in recognition this is almost a traumatic thing your body is doing. Give it a little bit of time to heal and then go and tell God how grateful you are you just made it through this thing called childbirth and you're alive and I think that's amazing
1: yes yes absolutely absolutely and there's a sacredness in blood as we know mm-hmm. uh, in the old testament and Uh, and I mean, in God's word. So I think that also, uh, is you're right. It just time and again, God reminds us to embrace and celebrate our bodies. And, uh, yeah, well, you mentioned, uh, Mary, we've, uh, uh, talk a little bit about Mary. Could you, you just, um, dive into, I don't know how else to say it. You dive into the birth narrative, um, and kind of, uh, well some of my you know dearest held beliefs are just shattered what can i say <laughs> no, you're welcome <laughs> you, we, <laughs> no you said you set us straight in a wonderful way that the whole story of of how jesus came to to earth in the form of a baby right um just takes on a whole lovely complexion uh in your telling so let me ask you this what do we get right and then what do we need to know to better understand this birth narrative
2: i think we get right that mary was young so and that they that mary and joseph traveled uh quite a long distance we get that right uh we get the location of the birth right um and that's almost it to be honest in terms well, I'm of you, it's
1: like shattering you know, <laughs> I know. all of my, i don't know what to do with my nativity scenes now you know
2: <laughs> um Yeah, I really want to employ several people in Bethlehem to redo the nativity scenes that they're selling people to be a little bit more accurate to the time and place. But what, and again, this is another one of those recognizing the role that women play in a community is Bethlehem at the time was an unwalled town. So bigger than a village, it's bigger than Nazareth, but it's, it's not a walled city like Jerusalem was. Jerusalem only being about five or five and a half miles to the north of Bethlehem. But that changes everything. It puts us into a town context where everyone knows everyone. And the idea that even the fact that people are traveling to Bethlehem for the census or there's a a family, Joseph would have shown up and been like, I'm Joseph, Ben, you know, I'm son of, son of, son of, here's my lineage. Everyone would go, we know you, we and this is the same in bethlehem today when you talk to the arab families who are living in bethlehem they all know who everyone is based on their last name so you give someone a family name and they're like oh okay so your family is so and so and so and so these are your cousins right and i so there's something about like it's anachronistic to kind of say how it is today is how it was in the bible but there is there are ways it's reflected and i think in bethlehem Mary and Joseph showing up, people would have understood who they were, what family they belonged to, and the fact that it is an unwalled small town, everyone's looking out for everyone. You have to show hospitality. You don't, you can't stay there unless someone has opened their home to you. So even this idea of where did Mary and Joseph go? Where is Mary when she's giving birth? She's in someone's house because that's the only place you have to stay. And so, you know, we could talk about why is she where the the animals were and all of those things, but but the context of the women in a town like Bethlehem, there would have been one or two, or a couple women who were the midwives, everyone would have known, here's a pregnant woman, we're all going to come to her aid, because chances are, more likely than not, she's going to die in the process of childbirth, we're going to do everything we can to help her survive, and there would have been a gathering and a supporting, and I think putting Jesus, the birth of this Jewish Messiah, in a context full of people in a community looking out for each other is such a beautiful way to read the story that I just, I prefer it to the story of isolation that we normally talk about.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think the, um, it, it does, uh, reinforce the importance of, um, seeing the, seeing the whole Bible in, a context or in a setting, which is what you do encountering yeah. Jesus, right? In the real world of the gospels, this is the real world. You can't, Luke can't put it all on one page, right? So that's where we have to fill out what his readers would have, would have known. Um, the, uh, Mary's raising Jesus back up in Nazareth. Anything you want to say about that before we look at some of the other women in Jesus's adult ministry?
2: We don't have that much information about the growing up years, as you know. And so we have to borrow from as much, as many clues as we can. One of the clues I love to borrow from is the land, because I think the land has a story to tell. And the idea that when you are standing physically in Nazareth, you are on a ledge And you have this tremendous horizon line, and the horizon line is holding on to stories. And when I imagine Jesus and Mary and Joseph in location in Nazareth for all the years, none of the gospel writers really tell us much about, you can infer, you can imply that Mary and Joseph are actively telling Jesus about his past, what story he belongs to. And his whole entire landscape around him is helping to inform his identity. So who are the great prophets? Well, on your horizon line, you have Elijah and Elisha stories, both that are held just by the shape of the land. They're are stories of kings, of Saul and his sons who died on Mount Gilboa. And all of these landscape clues just beg for the imagination, the sacred imagination to go, like, surely Mary took her kids out to the ledge. You know, I always imagine like this great picnic or just let the boys scamper or something, you know, just let them climb rocks and do what boys do. But There's always going to be a, what can we learn based on how God showed up at this point in time? What can we learn about how God showed up at this time? What is our storyline? What are we hoping for? Where are we hoping to go? What are we anticipating God is going to do? And I always imagine because the parents, the book of Deuteronomy would tell parents it is their responsibility to teach their kids. And so the whole foundation that Jesus has for who he is and what a Messiah is supposed to do is coming from his parents. And that would be a Mary and Joseph combination.
1: That's right. That's right. And Jesus takes that that teaching and he draws, uh, as he starts his ministry, he draws disciples around him, including female disciples. Yes. Right? You know, uh, Mary Magdalene, fascinating character, another person that I think in the history of interpretation, we've made a couple of big mistakes in understanding her.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We've been very uncompassionate <laughs> towards yes. her. Yes. Which is unfortunate. Yeah.
1: What are some of the things that you find most annoying uh, when people get wrong?
2: Oh, about about her in particular, I think the conflation of the stories of the woman who is unnamed in the Gospels who Jesus interacts with and casts out demons. And we kind of this unclean woman. And then we conflate that with Mary Magdalene. And right.
1: then conf- if I could jump in just for our listeners, that would be uh, Luke chapter seven, right? Yes, oh, with the Pharisees. Yep, yep, yeah. where she's unnamed and all of that. And then very beginning, Luke eight, where Mary Magdalene has said, seven demons have been cast out from her. And you're right, yeah, those two are conflated. And now somehow the sinful woman of, Uh, chapter seven becomes Mary Magdalene. She's never able to shake that. Once that joining has happened, that conflation has happened, like she's not able to shake this sense that she's somehow
2: sinful. And the idea that the sinful woman, for whatever reason, in a lot of biblical interpretation, it's almost like the only sin that could possibly be is prostitution. Right. (laughs) At what point is the only sin a woman can be guilty of prostitution? Like, and that too is something that just really bothers me in terms of the filling in the blanks with something that is a bit anachronistic and maybe not even correct in interpreting things in the real world that they happened in. So, so those things drive me crazy.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Me too. I, I, I find because what happens also then is that in the case of Mary Magdalene, the biblical text itself that talks about her is actually silenced. Like we don't hear the fact that she was one who uh, supported Jesus's ministry out of her earnings. In fact, what happens when people notice that, but they're working under the assumption that she was a prostitute, then they say, Well, those are ill gotten gains. You know, and right. you think, Oh, wow, now you're tying yourself up into knots because Jesus is taking uh ill-gotten gains you know from someone he shouldn't take money for. i mean come on you know yeah. that's it it's uh not a very carefully thought through interpretation right. because we're we have this template about what women can and can't be yeah and clearly mary magdalene having been healed is a devoted follower and yeah. wants to give her money as well as her time to jesus it's just that simple
2: right it's I would be really curious what you think about that. This is a an idea I've been playing with related to her. So uh, Mary is from Migdal, which is on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, in the political region of Galilee. And that that town or even the name has this Hebraic undercurrent of tower, strong tower. And I almost wonder if Jesus calling her like Mary Magdalene, if she isn't marry the one like a strong tower. And like, maybe, I don't know, this is conjecture and I'm kind of just fishing to see what you think, because Jesus gives uh, adjectives to several of his followers. You know, we have the sons of thunder, we have Peter, we have all these other disciples who are given adjectives. So why not marry the strong tower, which I need to play with that idea a little bit more, but I think it's endearing and kind of a great claim about who she is and what her character is.
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, and right off the top of my head, I think of her encounter with Jesus uh, at the tomb as he's yeah. raised and speaks with her. And she is then sent as an apostle to the apostles, right? Yeah. Um, a messenger with this great good news and, um, And, and so the early church certainly valorized her in Mm -hmm. that, in that message. And, you know, she, so here's another one of my pet peeves. I've said it before on the podcast, but I'll just say it again. When people talk about how Jesus was abandoned by all his disciples at the crucifixion. And I think, Mm. uh, excuse me, (laughs) I think there were some women there who do count as disciples and also John, but uh, so that would be another place where She certainly put herself in a situation where she could face harassment and not, if not worse, there uh, by staying with Jesus at the cross. Oh yeah, Strong Tower certainly fits from a character standpoint. Yeah. No, that's fun, that's fun. Yeah, that's good. Um, Mary and Martha, gotta ask Uh, you about Mary and Martha. They, oh, they, I love them and yet- I do too yeah they sometimes with the short stick end of the stick in interpretations
2: i'm I'm getting ready to write about these two, and so I've been dwelling on them a little bit, plus I'm a sister. I have two sisters who are amazing. We get along really well, so I imagine there are some people who know us who would be like Carrie, Cindy, and Lisa <laughs> the way that we always go Mary and Martha, like for right. some reason, they always are clumped together right. uh, but I think it's pretty amazing because they have a brother who just is only mentioned for the sake of the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, uh, in the gospel of John. Otherwise it's not that Jesus is going to Lazarus's house. He's going to Martha and Mary's house. And I, there is something, there are all these clues, right? That Mary and Martha are the ones who also really should be described as disciples, Because they, too, sit at the feet of Jesus. They, too, are well-beloved of Jesus. They, too, they have a home that Jesus is always staying in. During the passion narrative, Jesus goes back and forth, back and forth between their house and Jerusalem. And how amazing is that? Like, in one of the most significant, arduous, crazy weeks of Jesus's life, getting like walking purposefully towards death. His place of hospitality is the house of these two sisters, Um, not Lazarus's house, Mary and Martha's house. And I think that there's something incredibly beautiful about just recognizing the fact that they too, in their own way, are supporting Jesus and his ministry, are avid disciples, of his are sitting at his feet and learning from him. And, uh, you know, I don't, we, we can't write them out of the story. They need to be there because the gospel writers are putting them there.
1: Well, and I think of Martha declaring uh, what the Pharisees taught, which was uh, resurrection, bodily resurrection. She believes in that. And Jesus saying to her, I'm the resurrection and the life, Hmm. you know, a profound theological truth. So profound, yeah. And it's spoken to her. They're having a conversation, and he thinks she's going to understand this, yeah. You know, and she she does as much as anybody can prior to Jesus's uh, resurrection. Yeah. As we finish up this, wow, this time has gone so fast. But I, it can't
2: be over.
1: Well, we'll we'll have you on again, (laughs) right? Because we have to talk more about uh, all the good work that you're doing. But um, just in closing, if you, as you've been thinking about Mary and Martha. Um, and I'm so excited to read, um, your, your final, um, words on this, but just kind of as a preface for us, what are some of the things you think we could be doing today, uh, in the church, um, that, that model better the attitude and and the demeanor of Mary and Martha?
2: Hmm. There's... I have, I have a lot of thoughts trying to come forward all at the same time. So I'm going to try to put this in order. uh, That makes sense. But one of the first things that comes to mind is even when we do texting now on our phones, it's hard to read the right intonation into someone else's voice. So sometimes you're like, Ooh, are they mad at me or not? Like you can't quite tell when I think of the story of Mary and Martha and Martha being upset because Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and this interaction that Jesus and Martha have. Sometimes I think we've gotten that emotion incorrect. We read Jesus almost as a rebuke against Martha. Like, why are you so busy, right? We we have all kinds of studies of Martha where we're like, oh, don't be busy like Martha, study like Mary or something. But then we don't always mean that. We don't always allow for women to sit at the feet of Jesus. But I read that so much more compassionately with Jesus going, I see, I see how you feel the pressure of, of needing to provide the culturally correct amount of hospitality, but don't be obsessed with what you feel like you have to do. Be obsessed with who I am. And I think if we could take that Don't be obsessed with all the things we have to do because we feel a lot of pressure on ourselves as women who are homeschooling, working from home, navigating everyone's schedules, you know, like who knows, like create the whole entire huge long list that don't be as obsessed with the ways culturally you're thought you're supposed to perform. Be completely obsessed with who Jesus is. And I think there's something really beautiful about taking on that challenge.
1: Oh, that's lovely. And that's lovely for women. And I have to say it would work for men also, you know, (laughs) it's, uh, and Martha provides us and Mary a model for all disciples. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, well, thank you so much, Cindy, for visiting with us on the Alabaster Jar and your terrific book, Encountering Jesus in the Real World of the Gospels. I encourage all the listeners to rush out and get a copy you will love
2: reading it. Thanks so much Cindy. Thank you for having me here. It's it's so fun even just to be in the company of women talking about Jesus, about other women, of the biblical text and to be able to say I don't maybe they were real humans. Like let's just talk about that. It's it's really an honor to be able to be here Um, building on your work because i read a lot of your work before i do my own Uh, but yeah it's really just such a a great honor to be on on this podcast
1: well thank you very much and uh, we'll have you back again because this is really fun great All right.
0: thanks for joining us on today's episode of the alabaster jar if you enjoyed our conversation with dr cindy parker you can find a link to her book, Encountering Jesus in the Real World of the Gospels, in today's episode description. You can also learn more from Cindy at narrativeofplace.com and on the Context Matters and Israel Bible podcast. Be sure to join us back here next Tuesday for another episode of The Alabaster Jar.